One of the shows that our family will most likely always watch as long as it is on, probably, well, until uh, Nick moves out or until we die, will be America's Funniest Videos. Uh, most Sunday evenings, you're going to find us on the couch with a bowl of popcorn watching epic fails and mishaps. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I, maybe because it's, it's kind of cathartic, right? Uh, when uh, we see other people embarrass themselves, we're glad that we're not the only ones that those kinds of things happen to. Um, yet despite all the ways that, uh, that people are humbled in life, um, and, you know, we, we you know, mess up and all the things, but yet we still tend to, I don't know, we still tend to have a pretty high view of ourselves, right? I, I mean, we, we tend to overestimate our abilities in, in thinking of ourselves, as Scripture says, uh, more highly than we ought, I think. Uh, there's a story of a pastor who was, who was uh, moving from one church to another, and, and at the farewell dinner, uh, he tried to encourage one of his members who seemed especially sad and broken up over his leaving, and with a wink, he, he told her, well, don't be so sad, the, the next pastor will probably be so much better than me. And she said, well, that's what they said last time, but they keep getting worse. One of my favorite uh, pastor stories is about the preacher who was looking for something in his bedroom closet one Saturday afternoon, and he found a shoebox hidden away that he didn't recognize. As he opened the box, he found an egg carton with five eggs in it and a stack of bills that totaled, totaled just shy of $10,000. He didn't know where in the world this came from. He'd never seen it before. When his wife got home from the store that afternoon, he asked her if she knew anything about this shoebox and its odd contents. And she said, oh, yes, yes, dear. After we got married, I decided that for every sermon that you preached that was a bad one, when you laid an egg, as it were, I'd put an egg in the shoebox. The pastor was... Kind of proud of himself at that point. Over 40 years of ministry, he'd only laid an egg five times in the view of his wife. And then he remembered the money and he said, but honey, what about the $10,000? And she said, oh, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. Some of, oh, oh, there, somebody just, there you go. We preachers should not take ourselves too seriously. But I think it's true for all of us, right? We just shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. If we're not careful, we can start thinking of ourselves as better than we really are. And that attitude can creep into our spiritual lives as well. Pride, a lack of humility, considering yourself better than those around you, can, can turn us upside down in life. That's why Jesus told the parable that we're going to look at today. The story reads like a, like a first-hand account of something that, that, that very well could have, could have actually happened. Jesus uh, tells it as a story. Uh, people would have recognized m- many aspects of this story. It's about two very different men and their very different prayers. This is also one of the, the few parables that begins with a description of who Jesus was actually aiming at when he told the story. It's in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So this this parable starts off, uh, it's addressed to people who were, quote, confident in their of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. It probably wouldn't surprise you if uh, if I told you that narcissism is on the rise. Probably that's not a not a surprise. The, the term comes from the Greek myth about the handsome young man Narcissus who fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder was first listed as a mental health diagnosis in 1980, stating that it is defined by quote a pervasive pattern of grandiosity need for admiration, and lack of empathy. But long before it was, uh, uh, could be officially diagnosed by, uh, by mental health professionals, and narcissism was, uh, was, was still around, right? Uh, uh, even, let's see, in the, in the 60s, a, a book titled The Narcissistic Epidemic was published. Uh, studies back then showed that the use of statements used by adolescents such as, I am an important person, uh, use of the phrases like that increased from 12% in 1963 to 80% in 1992. The popularity of the phrase, I am the greatest, also increased significantly between 1960 to 2008 as they studied it over those years. Recent publications emphasize self-centered language. The use of personal pronouns like I and, and I have, have been, are used much more than we and us. Other studies reveal that uh, of Twitter users, I guess we say X users, uh, 80% tweet primarily about themselves. Now, I don't think for a second that any of that is, uh, is news to you. And I could take the rest of our time, probably the rest of the day, delving into factors in our world and our habits that that are contributing to this rise of self-centeredness. But but I don't think I need to. Uh, we're we're uh, you've we've we, you've probably are uh, are aware of a lot of these things because it's not new, and it doesn't just go back to 1980 or the 1960s. Uh, Jesus told this parable 1,990 years ago. And he directed it specifically to people who were, quote, confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Spiritual narcissism has been around a couple thousand years at least, right? Uh, self-centeredness and pride are not new things. Actually, pride is at the center of, of uh, everything we call sin. And sin has been around since almost the very beginning. All sin is putting myself First, I, I put myself on the throne of my life where God belongs. That's, that's what uh, the, the first man in Jesus' story, the Pharisee, that's, that's what he had done. So let's, let's look at the Pharisee for a minute. The people of Jesus' day uh, actually would have thought well of the Pharisees. So we, we tend to, if you've been in the church any length of time and you've heard uh, people like me preach, usually we're putting down the Pharisees because Jesus put down the Pharisees and so we have this negative view. But the people of Jesus' day would have thought, well, these are the religious leaders and, and they're, uh, they're respected and they're, they're righteous because they're following all the laws and, and doing all these things. And, and so the people of Jesus' day, I mean, they were probably a little scared of them, but they were, they were, uh, uh, they were respected, the Pharisees were respected in those days. 
It might seem, as we're reading this, it might seem a little weird to us that, uh, that this Pharisee stood up in front of God and everybody in the temple and, and prayed out loud for everybody to hear. But again, that, that wouldn't have been uncommon for the people listening, in, in, uh, listening to Jesus tell this story as well. They'd, they'd seen it before. It happened all the time. They'd probably seen it within the last week. Uh, so this was something that would have been common for them to see. The Pharisee's prayer, as Jesus tells it, is less about connecting with God, and it's more about self-congratulation, right? He, he's declaring his own praises. Uh, but, but we also need to see that he's not lying. I mean, he really did do a lot of good things. The Old Testament required people to fast one time a year. The Pharisees were required to fast once a week. This guy's doubling that. So he's doing a lot of, of good things. Uh, this is just one example. He's fasting uh, double, uh, so much more than everybody else, and double what the Pharisees were required. The Old Testament required people to give a tithe, 10% of your income. Uh, this guy was tithing on everything he got, not just money, but anything and everything. He was giving 10% away. He was, he, he was not only doing good things, but he's going far beyond what was required. So, so uh, we see that and we go, okay, well, maybe this guy isn't, isn't all that bad. What, what's the big deal with the Pharisee? Well, his pride was, was causing, causing some problems. His pride caused an, an inflated sense of self, first of all. The Pharisee's focus was completely on himself and, and what he was doing, and he took pride in that. Uh, verse 11 says that he stood, uh, uh, that, that he stood up uh, uh, by himself, but that actually could be translated, uh, uh, prayed, uh, instead of praying by himself, he's praying about himself or even to himself. Uh, he, he really did think a lot of himself and he thought of himself a lot. Both of those things are true. Uh, he, was, he was inflating uh, his own importance, his own sense of self. And it, he also displayed a deflated sense of God. This Pharisee didn't acknowledge God's greatness and authority. Uh, if you look at his prayer... <laughs> Worship, praise, confession, request, none of these things are, are in his prayer. What we might uh, say, well, uh, as we pray, we need to include a lot of different aspects. And, and uh, virtually, virtually nothing of what we would say makes up a, 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 a proper prayer or a prayer that, that, that God would be pleased with is, is part of this prayer. I, I'm, I'm not sure that we could actually define what he's doing as praying. I mean, it says that he's praying and he's, he's really just talking loudly in front of other people about how good he thought he was. He's using prayer as, as just a, providing a platform for declaring his own praises. See, the, the only acknowledgement of God was to make sure, hey God, notice me, notice what I'm doing, notice how great I've been. Inflated sense of self, deflated sense of God, and then he's also comparing himself to other people. And, and uh, he's, he's lifting himself up by knocking other people down. He compared his own righteous, righteousness to that of the notorious sins of, uh, of, of these other sinners, these groups of sinners. And, and actually, as I, as I think about it, he's not really raising the bar all that high. He says, man, I am more holy I am more righteous than people who cheat on their spouses and people who steal and people who do evil things and people who extort money. I, I mean, I hope so. You're, uh, you know, you're a leader of the church. I, I, I hope so. I, I mean, I'd venture to guess that most of the people that were in the temple that could overhear this prayer, they probably could have said those things too. They, weren't, they probably weren't doing those things either. But 
But that misses the whole point of, of what it means to come uh, to a right standing before God. It doesn't matter how, how we compare with the people around us. It matters how we compare with Jesus. I've, um, I'm, I know I've told you before about a, uh, the, the job I had in, in high school and uh, on breaks in college. I, I, I was a dishwasher at, uh, at an event center. I started out at $3.25 an hour. And I worked my way up to three fifty an hour over seven years. I may have maybe even broken the four dollar uh, ceiling. I'm not sure. Anyway, I, I still remember uh, when I first walked. It was <laughs> this. This will sound. I, I wasn't going to tell you the name because then you'll think different. It's called the Clintonville Women's Club, and that's where I wash dishes. And you're going to think that it's someplace that it's not, because it's not those kind of women. Um, it, it was, uh, they, they would host uh, the, the club, but they would host uh, wedding receptions and business dinners and all those kinds of things. Shouldn't have even gone there, never mind. Walked in the back door, up the steps, in the kitchen, everything's bustling, right? And, and the, the dishwasher's over in the corner and got a, a, a sink and, and the big commercial dishwasher, you open it up and it's steaming and all this stuff. And there's piles of pans and, and dishes and all those things that, that have already been building up before I got there. And, uh, and, and so, uh, as I, you know, I met a few people, but they're all busy doing their stuff. And then they, you know, they send me to the dishwasher and it's, start, it's time to wash dishes. And, and while I'm going through and trying to work on that pile, they just keep adding stuff to it. And at one point, uh, three pans uh, that had been used to cook au gratin potatoes uh, come over. So they've been, you know, the au gratin potatoes have been served and now the pans are there. And, um, and, and that particular night, the chef had, uh, in my opinion, now I... Maybe he would take umbrage, but I think he left him in a little too long, in my opinion. The, uh, the, the words uh, came to mind, must be from an old commercial, baked on, caked on, stuck on food. I, this, is, this would describe the, uh, the au gratin potato, but burnt on, I think we, we could probably say. So they probably served the middle stuff, because it wasn't quite, but the edge is just, I mean, it was. Now, I had washed my share of ditches. My mother had taught me well, but I was 16 years old, and I had never encountered... Uh, burnt au gratin potato pans before. Uh, one, let alone three. And, uh, so I scrubbed and I scraped and I squirted and I sprayed and, and it, it, you know, it seemed like somebody had stuck those potatoes on there with super glue. And I, and it, scrub that first pan for a while and then I'd rinse it off and, oh, there's still stuff and, and I'd scrub a little bit more and rinse it off and, well, that looks a little better, but there's still, and in the corners and all the things and the burnt and, I mean, and it, yeah, anyway. And then, I was looking at the pan I'm washing, and I look over at the other two pans that are waiting for me. And I thought, well, this looks really good. I mean, this looks a whole lot better than those. I actually considered, well, probably good enough. I, yeah, there's, you know, some, but I'll just put it in and send it through, and we'll put it back, and it's probably fine. Because compared to those pans, this one looks awesome. Of course, it didn't matter how, how that pan compared to a filthy pan. If that pan was going to be useful for cooking again, it only mattered how it looked compared to a spotless pan. 
The Pharisee in Jesus' parable was comparing himself, looking the wrong way and comparing himself to the wrong people. He found examples of people who were, quote, below him, right, on the religious scale, so to speak. Uh, what we maybe could uh, compare to dirty, uh, au gratin potato pans. And in the eye of the, the Jewish law, this guy looked real good compared to those guys. Instead, he should have been comparing himself to God and his righteousness. Now, this guy should have known the prophet Isaiah uh, um, seemed to have maybe gotten lost back there in all of his learning and growth. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Following Jesus is not a competition. We are, we are not competing against each other for who is the most holy. That misses the whole point. Pride causes us to inflate our view of ourselves, deflate our view of God, and compare our good deeds to others instead of to him. The Pharisee did all of those things. The tax collector did not. Let's look at the tax collector for a second. This guy uh, was certainly on the opposite end of the, the, the spiritual spectrum from this Pharisee in those days. The tax collectors were known for being deceptive and greedy and swindlers. They, they were Jews who worked for Rome. They uh, pocketed money that wasn't there and theirs in the process of collecting taxes and, and they were viewed as betrayers to their fellow countrymen. He was indeed a sinner. But the tax collector in Jesus' story approached God in a completely different way than the Pharisee did. He, he seems to have had the right perspective of who God was and who he was, not comparing to anyone or anything, but simply falling on the mercy and the grace of God. This tax collector, it says he stood at a distance. He, he, was, he felt like he was unworthy to be in the presence of God, and, and his prayer was a, was a far cry from the speech that this Pharisee had made. The tax collector's prayer in Greek is just six words. Uh, the the, uh, tra the, the uh, translation, literal translation is, O oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This man hadn't come to the temple in order to list his resume or recite his achievements or to bask in his own glory. He needed mercy. He needed forgiveness. He needed grace. He needed love. And he had come to deal with his sin. He had come to meet God. Jesus declares in the last verse of this passage, after he tells the story, he says that the tax collector, quote, went home justified before God. That's, that's a pivotal thing. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important concept that we, we have to drill down. It was, that was the point. That's, that's why people came to the temple, to be justified before God. All appearances indicate that the Pharisee uh, the, uh, and the ta the that the uh, uh, Pharisee was not justified. The tax collector, uh, well, all appearances would say, people watching would think that the Pharisee was the one and the, the tax collector not. Jesus flipped that around, right? Jesus says it's the opposite. Justification. Well, what in the world is that? It's not necessarily a term that, that we use uh, today much, uh, except maybe in church circles. And even at that, we're a little bit foggy on all of that. What is, what is justification? Uh, being justified is, is a legal term. Uh, it indicates that someone was declared not guilty. Or, or it can be translated as vindicated or acquitted. Set free, declared righteous, or uh, and and I think the, the the term the most of the times that Scripture uses it, it it's really uh, this last one to cause to be in right relation. 
justified before God means that this tax collector left in right relationship with God. Righteousness. Today in in Christian circles today, in, in our churches, evangelical Christian churches, we'd probably use the term saved. Uh, that this, this guy uh, came to meet with God, he met with God, he uh, fell down on his mercy and grace, and he experienced salvation. He came to God, he repented of his sin, he was forgiven, he was set free and put into a right relationship with God. The tax collector seems to have clued in on something that the Pharisee did not. Only God can justify. Only God can make us righteous. Only God can forgive us of our sins to put us in a right relationship with him. The Pharisee, by citing his own merits, was attempting, it appears, first and foremost, attempting to justify himself, right? Well, you've got to like me, you've got to accept me, because I've done all of this. I'm justified. I'm, I'm not guilty, because look what I've done. Look how great I am. Or, or he's also, in a sense, uh, wanting to be justified by the people around him in the temple that are, that are, that are hearing what he's saying. But that's not, the way, that's not the way it works. I can't be confident in my own righteousness and justified before God at the same time. Jesus says in the last line, and he said it more than once, this is not the only place, those who exalt themselves will be humbled but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So really this story is, is about a lot of things, but it's about humility, right? We come to God in reverence, always knowing that we are nothing without his grace and mercy. Andrew Murray puts it this way, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. I heard this definition of, uh, of humility uh, the, uh, over the, the, the past week, and, uh, and I think I like it a lot. A, a guy, uh, author, pastor by the name of David Mathis, he's written a, written a book, and, and uh, anyway, he, he says, he defines humility this way. It means telling, uh, say, telling God, you are God, I am not, and I'm good with that. You are God, I'm not, I'm happy with that. All is, all is well, I agree, <laughs> and I'm going to let you be God. Humbling ourselves means we're submitting to God and his leadership in our lives. There's a big difference. I think you'd agree there's a big difference between humility and humiliation, right? I mean, I would much rather willingly humble myself than be humiliated. If, if, we, uh, if we mess up, a lot of times we try to, we try to cover it up and so that we're not humiliated, right? We, we all have stories. Or we could tell our embarrassing moments and, and how we did this or that. And we probably tried to cover it up so that people wouldn't see. I, I mean, I, I meant to do that, right? Uh, uh, humility is, uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a character quality. We do that. We choose to do that ourselves. Uh, being humiliated, I mean... It's humiliating, right? Um, Humility is our voluntary and willful choice to submit to God and accept our place and position. But humiliation is, uh, is, is the forcing of an unwilling participant into their place or position. So we're thinking of ourselves better than we ought, and somebody's got to, I, I, we use the phrase, knock us down a peg or two, right? Humility in our relationship with God means surrender, Repentance for sin, submission to God's will and God's word and God's ways in everything. Humility puts God on the throne of our lives. 
But none of those words are words that are things that we admit. We'd rather be in charge. It is, it is a momentous day in a person's life when they can recognize in their own soul their need for Jesus fully and completely, their need for Jesus to justify them, to declare them righteous. It really and truly radically transforms your life when you can come to the end of yourself and simply pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we don't just pray that once and then we go on with our lives, right? We have to live in that humility, we, we have to live our lives uh, always submitted to God, relying on his mercy. It's not that we don't do good things. I mean, it was great that the, uh, that the Pharisee uh, wasn't evil and that he wasn't an adulterer or a thief or a swindler. But we have to see those good things for what they are. Our righteous acts don't earn us anything, uh, but uh, we, those, they simply are a response to the mercy and grace of God. They, they're just the least that I can do. In response to a loving God who has had mercy on me, a sinner. The, um, the question, I guess, is as I, as I read this parable and I, as we've kind of dissected it a little bit today, what is, what is the cry of your heart as you come to God? Is, is it the cry of your heart to be in a right relationship with God? I mean, that's, that's the tax collector. He, uh, ultimately, he came humbly and he simply just laid himself out before God and he wanted to connect and he wanted to be justified in right relationship with God. Un- unfortunately, many times, the cry of our heart isn't quite that. The cry of our heart is, is to feel good about ourselves or to be happy or to look good in the eyes of other people. So we compare and we compete And we look down on others and we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. What if, what if the cry of your heart today, right now, this morning, (laughs) was to be in a right relationship with God? Nothing else matters. Nothing else, no no one else matters. What would it mean if the cry of your heart was simply, I want to be in a right relationship with God? It would probably mean that, that if he revealed some, some sinful thing to you right now, you'd, you'd do whatever it took to deal with it. Because your cry of your heart is to be in right relationship with God. And, and if he, by his mercy, says, then we need to deal with this, then you're going to deal with that because you want more than anything else in the world, you want to be in a right relationship with God. You're going to fall on his mercy knowing that he's already promised to forgive if we just confess. You, you wouldn't care what anybody else thought. You wouldn't, you wouldn't leave this place. You wouldn't leave your time with God until you were in that right relationship with him. There might be things to confess or, or forgiveness to be sought or reconciliation to be worked for or habits to be broken. But you're going to do it because the cry of your heart isn't anything except being in right relationship with God. You haven't earned it. You certainly don't deserve it. You can just ask for it. God, have mercy on me, a sinner.